Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Aging Powerfully with Melissa Grello. Listen, I hope that you have been enjoying the episode so far. I've asked this before, and I would love to ask again. Please leave a review to help me improve the show and ensure that I am covering the topics that are important to you in a way that is helpful to you as well. Now, if you listened to the very first episode of Aging Powerfully, I interviewed Dr. Heather Hirsch, and we covered menopause 101. The show laid the groundwork for understanding menopause a little bit better. And also we defined key terms to understand this stage of life that 100% of women will go through. Now, today's episode is the next in a series of shows dedicated to menopause. And the one of, if you ask me, one of the major issues facing women is actually finding or getting appropriate health care. And so many women, not just in Canada, around the world are suffering needlessly through the menopause transition because of misconceptions about menopause, like hormone therapy. And also there's a lack of qualified doctors out there. There are so many issues that are really um, having a swim against stream to try to get appropriate care. I will be talking to my guest today about the importance of healthcare for women in midlife. And I know even when I wrote the words midlife, I was like, oh my gosh, that is now how I'm describing me and my generation. But listen, if we're going to live to 80 or 90, then guess what? In your 40s, you're like midlife. So guess what? This is where we're at. And at this stage, what we're starting to see are things like lack of access to menopause care. And the reasons for that, we're going to get into that on today's show. Why is there such a gap in care right now? And finally, we'll be discussing tips on how to talk to your doctor and to get or even find the care that you need to go through this phase of your life empowered and in control so that you can age powerfully. I've heard this adage time and time again, and it is so appropriate Menopause is inevitable, but suffering is not. I love that. Today's guest, Dr. Sarah Naomi Shaw, is joining me on Aging Powerfully. She is a family physician who has dedicated her career to advocacy for girls and women. She earned a BA in philosophy and women's studies from McGill University. And Sarah began her career running an outreach program for street prostitutes working in Nova Scotia. And then she went on to obtain a master in social work. Now, afterwards, she earned a doctorate in human development and psychology at Harvard University, with a dissertation focused on young women who cut themselves. And then at 31, she decided to go to medical school and has now been running a family practice for the last 16 years in Toronto, serving families of all ages. She has four sons whom she adores, and she considers being a mother one of her most significant sources of joy and also one of her most significant sources of learning. Please, I'm so honored to have her here. Help me welcome Dr. Sarah Shaw to Aging Powerfully with Melissa Grell. If I had an applause track, it would be for you, Dr. Shaw. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Melissa. Really, it's fantastic to be here. This is an incredibly important topic, and I am always delighted to join women who are in this space and ready to advocate for ourselves and for other women and for better health care. 
A hundred percent. You know, I'm, I'm very fortunate in my job because doing this podcast, I always look at myself as, um, the person who represents the average Canadian woman who is at this, you know, in this stage of her life, in her forties, experiencing perimenopausal symptoms and also encountering and having encounters with the healthcare system at this really interesting time of my life. And my job is to speak on behalf of those women to educate myself to help educate other women. And I get to talk to people like you because you're not only just as passionate about this topic, as passionate as I am, but you're on the other side of the healthcare equation. You bring the perspective of the physician and you're also a woman yourself. And so I love the the synergy between that and also my passion, which is, as you said, uh, educating and, and advocating for women who are just like me in this phase. So we're gonna start Dr. Shaw with a broader question and it feels like a general question and yet I think the answer will be really, really important to uh, the listeners and, and people watching this. Why do we uniquely at this time of our life, the perimenopausal, maybe late 30s, but certainly 40s, why is it that we need sort of unique care at this transition point in our lives? This is a really important question. I think the number one reason would be that women start becoming symptomatic. There's a whole... Uh, spectrum of range of symptoms. So women in menopause, there's over 30 symptoms associated with menopause. Symptoms can be mild. They can also be really severe. So 10% of women actually leave the job, their jobs because their symptoms are so severe. So based on symptoms alone, it's really important that women get care. They're confusing. They can be overwhelming. Uh, it can be time for crisis, not for all women, but for some women. So absolutely, they need to present, to have a conversation about it, to figure out, are those symptoms actually menopause? Is there something else going on? And because we have safe, effective options for women in terms of managing those symptoms, that would be reason number one. Reason number two is really an assessment at menopause and thinking about prevention at the time of menopause is the gateway to healthy aging. This is about prevention. Our, not only do, does our um, social and psychological well-being change, our occupational health may be changing too in midlife, we also know that there's a lot of physical changes that put women at risk of cardiovascular disease, dementia, osteoporosis, recurrent urinary tract infections. These are really key. And if we address these early, we can not only prevent symptoms and suffering, we're actually going to save the healthcare system a lot of money. And we're going to have people, we're going to have women who can contribute to their communities, take care of their families, and thrive in their jobs. Uh, that Those statistics are staggering. First of all, that 10% of women will actually leave the workforce because of their symptoms at this transition in life. That is an astounding economic impact. I mean, I think we talk about the sort of personal suffering that a lot of women are enduring, but 10% of women leaving the workforce, that actually hurts everybody. So I am stunned that the number is actually that high. And as you said, prevention is key. I think, as you know, as a physician, it feels like the healthcare system is just uh, teetering on the edge of collapse sometimes when we're hearing some of the news stories out there, certainly now because it, it's the heart of, of flu and virus season. But I think you make a great point there that you will actually save money for the system if we can get ahead of this problem. So I think those are really, really important points. 
I want to pick up on what you had said there, which is, you know, why do we uniquely need to go and get care at this stage or transition in our life? And I, I will speak anecdotally here. I'm 46 now, but my perimenopausal symptoms started years ago. And anecdotally, my girlfriends and I were kind of sharing the same stuff, which is waking up one day and feeling like, what happened to me? It was like a hangover and partying without the drinking and the partying and, you know, the achy joints or heart palpitations or weird, sometimes vertigo or really bad digestive issues. I mean, you name it. A few were already experiencing some um, hot flashes, but weren't necessarily even attributing it to perimenopause or menopause, which I think in retrospect is really interesting and maybe speaks to a lack of our education. And then I did what a lot of women would do is, you know, you call your doctor and you're like, oh my gosh, this is what's going on. I think I'm breaking down. I feel like I've got six illnesses. What's happening? You go for a battery of tests. They come back. They don't really provide any definitive solutions and they're ruling out anything, as you said, more serious. So I want to know that in that, I'm doing the, what I think is the right thing. Go to my doctor, talk to her, let's do some tests, you know, what's getting to the bottom of this. But if we go home without solutions, actionable solutions to relieve what we're experiencing, it makes me go back one step, which is how much training are doctors actually receiving about menopause and the menopause transition? This is a critical question. So I was in medical school in 2002. I had one lecture in all of medical school. Uh, a professor came in and said, um, hormone therapy is dangerous. Take all your women off it. You shouldn't prescribe it. And that is really what stuck in my head. And that was at the time in 2002, the results of the Women's Health Initiative called the WHI, they were, those were released. And it terrified women and it terrified physicians. And now we've been trying to recover that from that ever since. So that study, not only did it exaggerate the risks of hormone therapy, and it really was using a study for which the average age of women was 63 and extrapolating that to a much younger population of women who are, who are more likely to use hormone therapy because they're more likely to be symptomatic, um, which is a, not a good idea. That doesn't work. Just it doesn't necessarily apply those same findings. And they never talked about the benefits about hormone therapy. So there are definitely benefits. Benefits, it decreased all-cause mortality, decreased incidence of diabetes, colorectal cancer, beyond addressing the whole idea of, of symptoms and women's suffering and quality of life. And we're just coming on to trying to reckon with that now because we have a whole generation of physicians that were never taught how to do good menopause care, how to talk about hormone therapy in terms of risks and benefits and really have a shared decision-making discussion with their patients. And we also have a generation of women that were taught that hormones are scary and bad. So they're not talking about that's what they reflect to their daughters because they didn't have the chance to learn about it or an opportunity to manage the symptoms. I do think we are getting better, but it's a real problem we, because we don't have a clear curriculum in medical school on menopause, not even yet. And we don't have a clear curriculum in residency training for family doctors or for gynecologists, which is shocking. And gynecologist is where you would think that if a doctor doesn't feel equipped to handle a patient who's presenting with menopause symptoms, I've heard again, anecdotally, so many of my friends who are trying to go through this, who will then say, okay, well, then can I get a referral 
to a gynecologist, for example, and then you're hearing stories that if that gynecologist is taking clients and, and is providing menopause care, that some of those wait lists, I've heard 18 to 24 months. So, I mean, That's it's correct. shocking to me. So what I hear is one hour or sorry, one lecture about menopause training. This is when you were back in medical school. And so, and in residency. So I, I'm, this is going to be me going on a rant just for, just bear with me for two seconds. Because rant away. I have said this. It's just, rant worthy. It's rant worthy because it's infuriating to think and know that 100% of women are going to go through menopause. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Okay. The way we get there, whether it's surgical menopause and whether it's not surgical menopause, 100% of us are going to go through menopause. And I always think to myself, if we knew of an affliction that impacted 100% of men starting in their 40s onward, there, I feel like it's not out of the realm of possibility to think that there would be well-funded institutions, every university would be studying this, finding a cure, making sure no man suffers, and, and curing a male equivalent. And yet here we are in 2024 with 100% of the globe's women, billions of women since the beginning of time who go through menopause, and we're still saying don't know if that treatment's for you or sorry, you just got to go home and deal with it because that's mm -hmm. what aging is. I mean, I'm sorry for the rant, but I can't help but think that that's what's happening here. I think you're absolutely right. And I agree 100%. It's outrageous. Yeah. And we're going to change that. And that's why this podcast exists because it's about advocacy. And I think the pressure on the people who can change that hopefully are listening and it's educating women so that we can push for the care that is just expected for something that is totally natural. So, okay, I, rant over. I'm going <laughs> to go ahead. No, go ahead. You know what? We were just earlier today, I was working with my colleagues on um, articulating a brief, which we'll be sending to the House of Commons, that we need to have mandatory training in medical school and residency programs on menopause. It's 100%. It needs to be a, a standard part of the curriculum. Yes, it's it's astounding. It's astounding to me that it isn't already, but we're going to change that. That's that's a goal. There, there's a New Year's resolution for you for sure. Okay, let's move on now to, because you talked about um, some of the major misconceptions, and I know I actually do want to tell the listeners that I'm going to be dedicating an entire episode to uh, deconstructing the Women's Health Initiative study that set off this cascade of events that went from having the majority of women on menopause therapy to hormone therapy to now having it being almost single digits. And so I, I will say, because it is, uh, as you well know, much more than me, this is a huge topic and deconstructing it is going to take some more time and care. Um, and I have so many other questions for you, Dr. Shaw. So uh, let's put a pin in that. So please stay tuned for a future episode just on the study itself. So outside of the study and scares of links between hormone therapy and breast cancer, for example, there are a lot of other misconceptions out there. Here's one that I hear all the time from friends and family. A doctor will say, well, you're still having your period, so you can't have hormone therapy. Is that true or false? That's false. Absolutely, you can have hormone therapy when you still have a period. And we now know very clearly that there's a window of time in a woman's life where the benefits very clearly outweigh the risks. And that's when you are younger. It doesn't mean you can't take hormones later, but it means the risk benefit ratio 
changes. So women may be experiencing symptoms of perimenopause years before they actually stop having a period. So if they need it to, need to be treated, then they absolutely can um, with hormones. And in fact, we now can use the birth control much longer, much later in a woman's life, sometimes even up until the age of 55. And that can serve a dual purpose for birth control, as well as for a hormone replacement and to treat symptoms. You could also go, so hormones that we give after menopause are a much lower dose than a birth control pill. So that's another option. And there's many different vehicles, different ways that you can get those hormones. Okay. And we're going to talk about that as well, because I have very specific questions about that. Okay. So someone's listening and they said, you know, they've decided they've been sort of experiencing symptoms, perimenopausal symptoms, um, and they've decided they're going to go talk to their doctor about it. Again, for me, it was heart palpitations, uh, sleep disruptions, gas, bloating, digestive issues, skin issues, irregular periods, weight gain, hair loss, dry eyes, increased anxiety. I had brain fog. I had dizziness. So I've decided, you know what? I'm going to go to talk to my doctor. Somebody else might have more what we would call common or expected symptoms, um, you know, which is the night sweats and also the hot flashes, maybe pain with sex. Maybe they've just noticed they're way moodier than before, or some of my friends are experiencing full out rage. They just yeah. call it mom rage. But yeah. I've actually heard of friends who are reworking their work lives so that around a certain time of their cycle, they're just not going to do something because they know they they just can't mentally handle it because of rage, which I just thought that's astounding to me. So let's talk to the listener who is saying, you know what, I'm going to prepare myself to go talk to my doctor. I think I'm having all of these symptoms that I'd like to talk to him or her about. How should a patient prepare for that discussion with their doctor? Great question. So first of all, if you want to talk about menopause with your doctor, it's important enough that make an appointment just for that. Don't put anything else on the list. Sometimes I have women, sometimes I think women and women have taught, been taught this from our culture that maybe it's not important. Maybe they think I'm not comfortable talking about it or I'm not going to be open to it or I'm not going to feel like I have tools to be able to give them. So they're reluctant to bring it up. So sometimes they may bring it up at the end of the appointment. Menopause is really important. Make it front and center, top priority. When you're booking the appointment, tell the receptionist what you're booking for, because it actually gives doctors an opportunity to think, look at a patient chart. Sometimes if I have time, I'll actually look up extra stuff if I know that someone's coming in for something in particular. So it really gives me time to prepare, even if you're making an appointment that same day, just having five minutes for me to look at a patient's chart and think through helps. I think you want to think about what are your um, what's the most bothersome symptom to you? And I always ask patients to rate things on a scale of zero to 10, because I really want to know about the impact on their functioning, the impact on their quality of life. It steers me in the right direction on what's probably going to be most helpful for them. And that's really what I want to think about. So are you missing, for example, are you missing sleep? How many times are you waking up a night? How many hot flashes do you have? It, are you having, is this having a real impact on your mood? So if you had to rate your mood out of zero to 10, 10, you feel amazing. And if you tell me your mood is consistently three out of 10 for like the past three weeks, that's really significant. It really gives me a sense of what's happening for you. So um, to have a sense of what your symptoms are and to tell me what your hope is, like what is your number one hope? Sometimes people come in and they're like, I just wanna understand this. I'm feeling a little bit crazy. Is this real? So sometimes that's it. Sometimes people come in and they're like, 
actually, I really need time off work. It's not that I'm so worried about the symptoms, but I really think I just need a vacation or I just need to work part-time for a few weeks. I need to catch on sleep. I need to reprioritize my life. That's fine. Like I can help with those things if I know what somebody's goal is and what's their number one hope. And the next thing I would say is good medicine requires multiple visits and follow-up. So um, don't be surprised uh, and don't be disappointed when I say, please come back because I want to have another conversation about it because that's how I can give really good care. That's great. Would you suggest, because you were saying about symptoms, and I know that tracking symptoms, um, at least for me, was really helpful in talking to my healthcare practitioners in sort of writing down what was happening when, and um, that way I can even for myself understand it better and see, was there a pattern to this or how frequently was I experiencing things? For me, for example, waking up with swollen and achy hands um, and knees I literally woke up and felt like I was 105 and and I thought well how long is this a thing that does it stick around or do I find it fluctuates with my cycle so I started tracking do you recommend tracking or writing things down like I, I know this sounds so type A of me but like I had a spreadsheet and wrote them down and tick marks is that something that would be beneficial for you as a physician it's awesome. Well, you're not going to meet a doctor that's not type A. So like, <laughs> my heart is with uh, type A lists, keeping track of things. Like really, I relate to that entirely. Um, I think it can be really helpful information, not just for me, but also for the patient to understand what's actually happening in your life. And there might be a pattern and a reason behind it. So I do really like things like that. And I often do ask patients to keep a diary of what's going on. On the other hand, if a person says, I just can't do it, then that's fine too. We can just have a discussion about it, but I think it can be very helpful. And there's some good tools and apps out there to do that, to make it easier. So I want to be clear that even though we're talking a lot about these symptoms in the context of menopause, you as a physician, I mean, you would not necessarily just look at a patient through the lens of menopause, you are really looking to see what are all possible causes for certain symptoms and and rule out, I mean, your first line of action is to rule out other things that could be behind this. Am I right in saying that? I think it really depends on the constellation of symptoms that a person comes in with. So there's some symptoms that always merit investigation. They just do. They're really important. If you have a woman, you know, who's 55, who comes in with new onset bloating and she's kind of lost her appetite, that absolutely needs a workup. Someone who's lost weight and we don't have a reason, a, a clear explanation, they're not like taking Ozempic, they haven't been working out or changed their diet, that needs to be worked up. Cardiac symptoms, they need to be worked up. Always 100%. So you really need to have a good history is probably the most important thing we do as medicine and then add on physical and physical exam and investigations as needed. And it should be individualized to the woman. We don't need investigations to diagnose menopause when it's really straightforward, but we absolutely need investigations if there's any worrisome symptoms. Okay. I wanted to be really clear with that. So thank you for clarifying that as well. So now you've gone to your doctor, you've listed out the symptoms you've been tracking, you're having these discussions and oh boy, you get the whole spiel with, I'm sorry, you haven't hit menopause yet. So there's nothing I can do for you. Or you hear that dreaded, well, you can't take hormone therapy yet because you're still having periods or you're too young. 
you're too young for this. This is this is not your concern right now. Go eat better. Just go start to exercise and then come back and see me when your periods stop. I mean, at that point, what can a patient do or say if their gut is telling them? That's not helpful. <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately, there's a whole history of medicine that has dismissed, not it's a history not specific to medicine, but it happens in medicine, um, of women being dismissed for their symptoms and told that it's not important or suck it up. And that's really problematic. These hot flashes are not a simple suck it up event. They're actually quite complex physiological changes, just for one example. And if women aren't well, women are usually the people who take care of their families. It has a ripple effect. Uh, through our families and communities. So what can patients do? Um, first of all, I would say take heart. There are practitioners out there that really do care. And it may not be that your practitioner doesn't care. It may be that they don't feel like they're particularly well-skilled in managing menopause. So if this is a if this is a practitioner that's really important to you and you want to stick with them, um, one thing you could do is there's a brilliant tool, brilliant in its simplicity and accessibility called the MQ6. And it was developed by a family doctor in Toronto by Dr. Sue Goldstein. And if you just Google MQ6, it actually has a whole um, patient tab. It'll take you through a range of symptoms and you can then print it out and take it to your doctor. You can also sit down with your doctor and have your doctor do it with you and then it gives them all the treatment options so if they're not feeling like they're up to date on the most current research it actually helps them and it helps you at the same time you can also find a nam certified practitioner so nam certified it stands for the north american menopause society now it's been renamed the menopause society but it is a society that's dedicated toward uh, teaching practitioners. So it may be a family doctor, it may be a gynecologist, it might be a nurse practitioner, it might be a pharmacist, teaching and educating about menopause and how we can manage it. So you can actually Google NAMS practitioner and there are NAMS practitioners in Ontario and Toronto. So sometimes those require a referral, but most of those people you could actually contact on your own. So that's another option. And you can ask, you could say, to your doctor, you know what, these are really important to me. Um, can you please refer me to a gynecologist or to one of the two specialty menopause clinics? Okay, so our listeners are right across the country, and I want to go back to the NAMS website, which again, it's it's supposed to stand for North American Menopause Society, but it has been renamed to Menopause Society. Um, but it, it still holds on to at least online if you Google N, the acronym is NAMS. I really want to stop here for a second because when I discovered not only the webpage for the North American Menopause Society now, menopause, is it just Menopause Society that it's been changed yep, to? Yeah, exactly. Menopause Society. I felt like I hit on a gold mine yeah. when I discovered the tool to find a menopause specialist anywhere in North America. So I want to pause here for a second because this podcast, I think, will be a game changer for women wherever they're listening, whatever province or territory, because the tool is really simple. You just plug in your province or your city and an entire list of menopause practitioners who have been trained and certified by 
the North American Menopause Society slash Menopause Society pops up. And it even says if they are accepting new patients. And the phone numbers are there and the addresses are there. I have sent so many people that I know that have not been able to find care in any way for years to this site and they have found their person. So this is really crucial because you're right. Maybe your doctor's really honest with you and says, I'm not the right person to be caring for this, so we're going to need to go somewhere else, which is wonderful. That's great to acknowledge, but you just don't want to leave. Obviously, no mm-hmm. doctor wants to leave a patient without options. I'm, I'm sure of that. But this site for me was a game changer in addition to so much information that's available there. And here's the thing. This is why this podcast exists, Dr. Shaw, because when I discovered this website, the North American Menopause Society has been around forever. And I thought, why have I very well-educated woman who prides herself on taking care of herself and knowing all the things, never heard of this, never seen this website. So I really hope that this is an opportunity for us to make this website crash because, not because I wanted to crash, but because so many women say, are going to say, oh my gosh, what a discovery. So I'm going to say one last time, the North American Menopause Society, go onto the website, NAMS practitioner, and wherever you are in North America, you can find a practitioner. I'm very passionate about this, as you can see, Dr. Shaw. So I'm so glad you brought up NAMS because um, it is so huge. Related to NAMS and related to finding a menopause specialist in your area, I went through the list and noticed that, yes, there were a lot of physicians on there, but there were a lot of other healthcare practitioners on there as well, namely naturopaths. So let's talk about qualifications to care. I understand that there's a healthcare crisis in this country and accessing a doctor, period, not even for menopause care. There's a lot of people, I think millions of Canadians who cannot even get in or find a family doctor. Who is qualified then to give menopause care if it's not necessarily your family doctor? So definitely nurse practitioners. Nurse practitioners are very well trained. I've worked with nurse practitioners for a very long time. Um, They can assess, diagnose, treat, prescribe, send for investigations. Uh, So I think that's a really important category of healthcare professionals that that I would assure patients they're very well trained and they're very skilled and competent. Um, Naturopaths, so I'm not a naturopath, so um, I don't understand all the licensing requirements, but other professionals, including naturopaths, including pharmacists, dietitians, there's a whole range of people that can actually be NAM certified. It doesn't mean that all of those people have prescribing powers. I think what's really important, I think if you're NAMS, if someone is NAM certified, you can be reassured that they are up to date with current guidelines, um, what, are the, what are the safest medications and being able to talk patients through the risks and benefits of different options for treating symptoms. Okay. Uh, I'm it's, pretty, so- it's pretty rigorous for, for, for NAMS. And there, when you go, I was at their annual meeting in Philadelphia in September this year, the quality of their conferences and what they ask for in terms of rigorous study is very impressive. Okay. That's really reassuring to hear you say that. So uh, I think, again, it's a wonderful resource and I'm, I'm glad to, to hear that um, 
that you you back it hundred uh, percent, which is amazing. Let's transition now to um, something that I've already touched upon in a few other podcasts. In fact, one of them with uh, one of your colleagues, um, which is Dr. Amy Lewis Bayless, and talking about treatment options. And so let's get to the part of the discussion, which I think is going to be really, really important for women who are symptomatic and are looking for some kind of relief in this transition in their life. So I want to start actually with non-hormonal, non-medicinal interventions that really you have found in your practice and with your clients or your patients that actually really are helpful. And that's lifestyle. So what do you recommend to your, um, you know, patients who are in this menopause transition? They are symptomatic. They are looking for relief of some sort in the realm of nutrition and, and fitness and lifestyle changes in general. What do you recommend? So I always try and tell patients, like, start with baby steps. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to make, I think if we tell people that they have to change absolutely everything, then they leave my office disempowered and paralyzed. And I don't, I want everybody to leave my my office feeling like they're more empowered. They have more information. They have something that they, they have a next step. So I think baby steps are good. So I would figure out, I say, start with low hanging fruit. What's easy for you to start with and small successes lead to more successes. And then you're more confident, you're more ambitious to start with more. So I would say, think about what you can do easily, what you're motivated to do. But, but the areas that I think about as being important are prioritize sleep. So have some sleep hygiene. So have a sleep schedule, go to bed if you can. I mean, if you do shift work, obviously you don't have any choice about that, but go to bed at the same time, try and get up around the same time, a dark, cool room, exercise earlier in the day, limit caffeine and alcohol. Um, That would be a big one. And it's not always perfect. I, I mean, I'm one of those people I've spent a long time being on call, having young kids, you know, staying up with kids, getting up early, being woken up by my husband. Like there's all kinds of things that disrupt our sleep. So you do the best you can and you don't have to think about it in terms of a 24 hour think about it in terms of a, of a week like give yourself a bit of a break but prioritize sleep exercise if i had to tell people one magic bullet one prescription that is key it's exercise and it doesn't need to be fancy you don't need to join a gym you don't need special equipment you don't need to wear a special outfit really it's Exercise has benefits for your cardiovascular health. It has benefits for your joint. It has very clear benefits for mental health. It has benefits for your bones and preventing fractures. So exercise, whatever it is you can do. I love exercising, but sometimes all I get to do is like at lunchtime, I try and walk the stairs in my office building. Sometimes that it's as good as it gets. I keep little weights by the TV so that when my kids are watching TV, I stand there, they laugh at me and I stand there and lift weights as we all watch TV together. It's whatever you can fit in. So exercise, sleep, limiting alcohol um, is a really important one. And do things that are meaningful to you. Do things that, pick things that are important to you. And I'll just go back for one second. You talked about some women in your life that really felt they experienced rage around their cycle. So they planned their life differently in terms of their work commitments. I actually think that's brilliant. As much as possible, try and be, try and be in the driver's seat of your life. And if you can, if you have the autonomy to make decisions to change your work schedule, go for it. You should do it. That's exactly what you should do. That's what I hope we teach all our kids 
make your life work for you, however much you can. There's some things we can't control, but there's some things we can. Yeah, it's it's empowering. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you 100%. Uh, we want to move now to non-hormonal therapies or medications, uh, because of course, I'm going to leave hormone therapy uh, for the last sort of big chunk of our discussion. Um, are there other um, medications out there and interventions that are non-hormonal in nature and yet have been found uh, and have the evidence of helping women for various symptoms? One of the big categories are SSRIs and SNRIs. So those are medications that target serotonin and they're medications that we often, most often prescribe for anxiety and depression. They also work for hot flashes. They're not as quite as effective as hormones, but they do work for hot flashes and they are safe. Um, so things like Paxil, so those can help. If you also are experiencing some mood symptoms and anxiety, then they'll help with that too. But you don't need to be depressed to have benefit from Paxil, for example, for hot flashes. So I think it's really important. And if I prescribe it for hot flashes to tell women, if they're clearly not depressed or anxious, it's really the hot flashes. I, I say like, you're probably gonna Google this. I'm not giving this to you because I think you're depressed and I'm being really transparent. I'm giving them to you because this actually helps with hot flashes. So SSRIs and SNRIs are one big category. Gabapentin is a medication that was originally developed to prevent seizures. And we also use it to treat neuropathic pain. So things like sciatica and sometimes chronic pain, it works really well for hot flashes. And it also helps with, it helps you sleep a little bit. So I give it at night and often it helps with hot flashes and sleep. I also, my vet prescribes it for our cat. Like when we travel, it helps. So it's, it's, it's a very safe drug and we're giving it in small doses, much smaller doses than we would for, for other conditions. So gabapentin is a good one. There's a medication called Vesolinitant. So that was approved in the United States last year. We hope it will be coming to Canada this spring or summer. And that is a non-hormonal safe option, which is really effective for hot flashes. And it works on neurotransmitters in the brain. And that's where we know that hot flashes start. These are all great. So I hope that people are writing these down. I will put the names of these in the show notes as well, because again, uh, I say this uh, over and over again, that I'm not the doctor. This podcast is not meant to replace your primary care uh, physicians um, care for you. But I think empowering people who are listening with this information is what they're going to go to their doctor with or their menopause specialist with. So that is the whole point. So I appreciate you laying those out uh, for us like that. Okay, let's move on to the big one. And this is the big one. Hormone therapy. I say big one and I wish that it wasn't so dramatic because I'm even adding fuel to the terrible fire that has been burning for decades, which is Ooh, hormone therapy. And quite frankly, it shouldn't be that way. So let me take a step back and say, if you choose or want to explore hormone therapy and have these discussions with your doctor, what is it that we need to know as a patient before we even go in with our doctor or perhaps questions to ask our doctor if we think, you know, this is something I want to look into? What would you say that a patient should say to their practitioner? I would go in with the, um, if you've been tracking your symptoms, that's great. 
go in with your symptoms, how severe they are, and what symptoms are most important that you want to address. So is it brain fog? Is it hot flashes? Is it anxiety or depression? Is it joint pain? And then they can help you problem solve about what's the most effective. Hormone therapy in Canada only has an indication for vasomotor symptoms. So that's like hot flashes. Um, but in other places, it actually has an indication for osteoporosis and preventing fractures in addition to the hot flashes. And we know that hormone therapy can actually help with other symptoms. It does, it is very effective for hot flashes, but it can also help with other symptoms, including sleep, because hot flashes really disrupt sleep and they tend to be a downward spiral in terms of mood if you're sleep deprived. So what, let's start with um, what are the actual hormones in hormone therapy? So the two main hormones are estrogen and uh, progestogen. And these hormones can be synthetic or bio or body identical. Both are safe. And one big thing that I think is really important to know is to go with pharmaceutical grade, Health Canada or FDA approved drugs. I think that's the starting line. I don't recommend compounded drugs because compounded drugs, they're not monitored in terms of purity, what the dosing is. We don't know if we're getting exactly the same dose in every compound prescription. So um, Health Canada approved, regulated um, estrogen and progesterone. And they come in different forms. Okay, so let's talk about those forms because I think a lot of women even have that base. I came into this journey recently saying, well, how do we get it? Is it I just assumed they were all pills? And in fact, we can uh, the vehicle with which we can have hormone therapy, there's many. So what are they? There's so many good choices. So first, I'll make a distinction between systemic hormones and local hormones. So systemic might be when you take it through um, a pill or it may be a patch or a cream that you put on your arm or leg. And that has greater benefit. It also has greater risk. And then there's topical, like local estrogen that treats symptoms that symptoms of like vaginal dryness, pain with sex, urinary tract infections. So that's estrogen that goes into the vagina or on, um, on the vulva parts of just inside the vagina with a cream, a tablet, or a ring. And that is very safe. Virtually all women can use that and use it for decades. It doesn't have the risk. Well, usually when we're talking about any kind of risks in the WHI, we're referring to systemic hormones. So just to make that distinction that vaginal estrogen is actually incredibly safe for decades, all ages of women. When we look at systemic hormones, so if you have a uterus, so for example, if you haven't had a hysterectomy for some reason, um, then estrogen needs to be paired with a progestogen other, and that's to protect the uterus. Otherwise, you can get the lining of the uterus, so the lining of the womb can get too thick, and that can put us at risk of complications. And you can get, you can take, but if you don't have a uterus, you can take estrogen alone. And that estrogen could come via a pill. It could come via um, a little gel or a pump gel, or it could come in a patch. You can also get combined products that you have estrogen and progesterone together. You can get that both both in a birth, like a birth control pill, but it's a low dose, a really low dose um, combination of estrogen and progesterone. And it doesn't work as a birth control when it's that 
low. So it's not going to prevent pregnancy. So if you're 46, you're having symptoms, but you're still menstruating, but you don't want to get pregnant at 46, which is a possibility, then you want to take a low dose birth control pill, not uh, menopause replacement therapy, which is much lower dose, but you could take a combined pill. You could take a combined patch that you take twice a week and you put it here, or you could take like an estrogen gel or a pump that you put on your leg and then take a pill of progesterone that you swallow. And those pills are often taken at night. So Prometrium is a form of progesterone. It's bioidentical and it actually helps women sleep a little bit. So you get two benefits for that. Or you could take estrogen and have an IUD, a progesterone IUD, an intrauterine device. And an intrauterine device, not only does it protect the uterus, but if you haven't stopped menstruating, but some women, when they go, when they get close to menopause, they start having really heavy periods. They might be having clots, it's disruptive, they might be anemic. So IUDs also help really limit that blood flow, which can be incredibly helpful. I think this is about tailoring it to the individual woman, give it a try for three months, and then come back and reassess. So I have, I, I take um, hormone replacement, and I take this little package, it's a little foil package. I like it because it's safe, I can put it up high, I have kids in the house, it's very clear what the dose is, you can travel with it. And it's awesome. And then I take a pill because that's what works for me. Right. And that might be perfect for you and somebody else has to try something else. So it sounds I, exactly. there's a lot that you said there that I want to unpack. So it sounds like there's going to be perhaps a little bit of trial and error at the beginning yeah. to try to figure out uh, what combination works for you, what method works for you. You were talking about the patch. And if people are only listening and not watching, you were pointing to your tricep, like the back of your arm. And that's where a patch would literally be stuck. And then it will, mm -hmm. I guess, slowly release to go through your skin um, or transdermally. So that, that was what you had pointed to. You said the words that a lot of women hear and have no idea what it means, which is Bioidentical hormone. This is a loaded, again, I say loaded because there's just such a lack of education about it. And then we just start to fill in what we don't really know. Can you define what is a bioidentical hormone? And um, in terms of risks or it compared to other forms of hormones, where does it sit in the world? That's a really important question. So bioidentical is really a marketing term. It, it's not like it has to meet a certain, to be bioidentical, it has to meet a certain standard. Really, it's, it's a marketing term. And what happened was when women stopped taking hormone replacement therapy was that was prescribed by their physicians in the early 2000s, there, women didn't know what to do for care. So often they were getting these um, compounded products thinking that they were safer. Really, it needs to be, you can, you can have body identical hormones that are like the same hormones we would produce in our body. And those are safe, body identical. You can also have synthetic hormones, which as long as they're pharmaceutical grade, that they've been studied and tested and they're monitored for safety and purity, synthetic hormones can be perfectly safe. It's not that one is necessarily better than the other. They can both be perfectly fine, perfectly safe. And I don't have a preference one or one over the other. It's really about the individual woman, what her, what her medical history is and her personal preference. Can I, can I just get some clarification there? So 
body identical versus synthetic, but wouldn't they both be made in a lab or am I hearing that wrong? Yeah, they are. No, you're absolutely right. They are. They are. But I think for a long time, it's been sold that somehow there's this class of drugs out there that it's kind of like the idea that if it's plant-based, it's absolutely fine and there's no danger to it. I think the point I want to make is that you can get pharmaceutical grades made in the lab that are both synthetic and body identical. What we have to make sure is that there's always a safety protocol so that what they say is in that medication, someone's checking to be sure that's actually what's in the medication. And we can't get that guaranteed if it's compounded, meaning somebody else is like doing the measurements and making it for you. Yeah. You're better off going with a standardized product. Got it. It doesn't mean that you can't. I mean, when I prescribe diaper rashes for babies, when I see babies in the office, sometimes I ask the pharmacy to mix together a couple of products or I tell the actually the parents that they can do it on their own. That's a slightly different category. It doesn't mean the mixing is always bad. But when we've been talking about um, compounded hormones, we have a history where we don't really understand that safety and it's not been entirely clear what's in those compounded medications. And sometimes progesterone creams have been prescribed. And we know that progesterone cream, progesterone, Um, is a hormone that is not well absorbed through the skin. Estrogen is different, so it's not going to protect the uterus. Okay, understood. Okay, so if you have a uterus, you are always going to be getting estrogen with progesterone uh, at the same time. If you don't have a uterus, you will, uh, the progesterone is not necessary and therefore you can have estrogen on its own and you can get it through a patch, you can get it through creams or gels, you can take it orally as well. There's one that I hear about all the time that you haven't mentioned yet. That is a thing called a pellet And although I haven't seen it myself, I imagine that it probably looks like a piece of rabbit food and it's somehow put on on or in your body with like a little, they sew in or cut a little pocket and place in a little pellet and sew you up. I, I don't know if I have this wrong, but that's what I think and see in my mind when I hear pellet for hormone therapy. What is that? Is it safe? Do you recommend it? I'm so glad you brought that up. I think it's a little bit more common in the U.S. than we see in Canada. I've never encountered a patient, one a patient in Canada who's done it. They are not regulated. They're not seen as safe at this time. Once they're in, we can't then take them out. So there have been cases where patients have had very high levels, for example, of testosterone from testosterone pellets. They've started having um, symptoms. Um, that's really scary. I do not recommend pellets. Okay. You just mentioned testosterone. We haven't talked about that yet. Where does that live in the world of hormone therapy? And do you recommend it? And if so, for whom? And if not, for whom? Um, that's a whole other big question. So um, <laughs> testosterone it wouldn't be as common that we prescribe it as common as estrogen and progesterone. Um, but there is an indication for um, if you have hypoactive sexual desire, and, and that can be a... Um, a really frustrating problem for women. So you can, can try I just put it. that in can I put that into plain speak? You just don't want to get it on anymore. You have no sex yeah. drive and low libido. And exactly. I've heard a lot of people kind of say, well, testosterone could be the key to that. And yes and no. Is that right? <laughs> yes. I think um 
hypoactive sexual desire, especially for women, I think there's a bunch of things that go into that. So if you really want to have a fulsome assessment, you'd be looking at things like, you know, a woman, if it hurts to have sex because you have, you know, dryness and you've had changes in the vulva and you're 60 years old, you're probably not going to want to have sex because it hurts. So maybe what we need to start with is getting some vaginal estrogen to help make sex more comfortable. Um, If you're having urinary incontinence because you had, you know, multiple pregnancies, vaginal deliveries, you're older, then we need to address the urinary continence. If you're worried that you're going to leak when you have intercourse, that's just not going to be a good thing in terms of your desire um, and having pleasure from sex. So we really need to think about that. We need to think about relationships, like is there something going on in your relationship? But we do know that testosterone can help with sexual desire. It's not a panacea. So testosterone, what they found is it increases the number of pleasurable sexual events by one to two per month. And testosterone can be prescribed. We don't have a product in Canada at this time that is actually developed for women for low sexual desire. There is a product in Australia. They're a little bit further ahead than Canada, but we can still safely prescribe it. But what you have to do, we prescribe it and you you give um, a half pump and it it crumbs in like a cream form that goes to the back of the leg. And if you want to take that, we always measure testosterone beforehand. We want to make sure that there's not too high levels of testosterone and really it's a see if it works for you. Does it help? Do you have any side effects? Uh, I, it's a great, we never hear this one as commonly. Um, and again, when you speak to, or I often will talk about the misogyny in medicine and science. And again, if you're talking about women who have a low sex drive because it hurts or it's your, your vagina is dry and there is something that could help us, it's like, why isn't all the money in funding going into studying this? just like it should for all other things that are impacting us at this time. I just think it would be, it's so um, obvious and yet could be so revolutionary, you know, and this is how you can get some many straight men on board going, hey, we should fund more hormone therapy for women because this could be one of those hooks that they go, oh, maybe, maybe testosterone helps. Let's look into it. Anyway, I'm going to end with the question. Now that we know that you can start hormone therapy before your periods stop, I want to know the other end of things. For how long can a woman uh, or someone who's on hormone therapy be on it for? So the, the benefits really uh, outweigh the risks when women are younger. So under the age of 60 and within 10 years of menopause. But there's no specific end point. There was a time at which we were really concerned and we were like, maybe five years, no more. There really might be some benefits to taking it longer. And it should be about shared decision-making with your patient. We need to very clearly sit down with women. Women are smart. We need to tell them, here's what the research is. Here are the benefits. Here are the risks. And we need to weigh those two things together. So if you have a woman who's 62 She's otherwise in good health. She hasn't had a heart attack or stroke. She hasn't had any breast cancer um, or ovarian or endometrial cancer. She's not had any blood clots. And she's and she's like, I tried to go off the hormone therapy. I have raging hot flashes. I feel terrible. I want to stay on this. That's a reasonable decision. So I think it's about having a conversation every year. I would say this about any medication I prescribe. Please come and talk to me once a year so we can reassess. Does this work for you? Do you have side effects? 
Is there any new research that's come out in the last year that I should be talking about with you? And we also know that if we tweak how the medication is given to you, it may decrease the risk. So for example, we do know, even though for many women taking a pill might be the best route of taking hormone therapy, we also know that there's lower risks, for example, of cardiovascular disease, having blood clots, if you actually take estrogen transdermally. So if you take it with a patch or a gel, so we can have that conversation. Maybe maybe as a woman get, gets older, she might say, you know what, I don't want to do that pill. I want a lower dose of hormone, and I'm going to switch to this route of administration of the drug. It's phenomenal information that you are giving. And I know it almost sounds like maybe just medicine 101 for you as a doctor, but I cannot tell you how this is the first time I'm hearing some things here. I've been reading about this a lot for a while, obviously. I, I just wish that this was as common knowledge to all women as anything else that we have to experience in our life, because it is a game changer. You know, at the very least, it can help just get you uh, through the day and increase your quality of life. And on the other end of things, it might actually prevent really major medical uh, in incidences or disease or illness, you know. Uh, so I cannot tell you how appreciative I am that you're able to lay it out for us in layman's terms, in a way that we can all understand. I feel so much more educated after this discussion. And I cannot thank you enough for sharing that with me. It's so great to be here. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about this and to empower women. That's what we need to do. We need to empower women and we need to have really good training programs for healthcare providers. Thank you for talking about this. I love it. And I do always end every episode asking my guests the same question, which is what is your number one piece of advice, Dr. Shaw, to age powerfully? I think the thing that I say um, on a daily basis to my patients and to myself, I ask myself this question is, you know what? We live once. We get one time around. Make it meaningful. So what does that mean to you? What does that mean to me? And I think that is what um, focuses us, it motivates us, it keeps us happy and energized. Like figure out what's your motivator. And I think that changes year by year and it changes in different stages of our life. But um, we get one turnaround, make it what you want it to be, make it meaningful. And hopefully doing it empowered, particularly when it comes to our health. Dr. Shaw, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. If you'd like to hear more of what Dr. Shaw is doing, and she's got a wonderful crew of colleagues that have already been with me on the podcast, Dr. Wagani Filate and also Dr. Uh, Amy lewis Bayless at... It's Our Time Canada is your Instagram handle. You are all providing wonderful content when it comes to helping women through this menopause transition as three physicians. So at It's Our Time Canada is the Instagram handle. While you're online, if you are scrolling around looking for more information, don't forget to follow at Aging Powerfully with MG on Instagram or my personal, which is at Melissa Grello uh, as well. We've got a YouTube channel under Melissa Grello and agingpowerfullywithmelissagrello.com is the website. If you've got any comments, you can always catch me there. Let me know what you'd like to see uh, also in upcoming episodes as well. And finally, give us a like, 
give us a follow, subscribe to this podcast. Please leave a review. I love to read what you are thinking of all of these episodes and feedback is key to growth and I welcome it openly. So please give us a like and a follow and a subscribe, leave a review. It would be super helpful as well. Thank you every single one of you for joining me on this latest edition of Aging Powerfully with Melissa Grello.